Everybody, I want to welcome you to the first episode of the How to Fix a Broken Record podcast. I am Amina Brown, the author of How to Fix a Broken Record, the book, and also your host for How to Fix a Broken Record podcast. So thank you for joining and listening. This podcast is going to be a great opportunity for me to engage with people who are reading the book and hopefully a great opportunity for you um, if you are reading the book or maybe if you haven't read the book, it will be encouragement to check it out. Also, uh, this podcast, to let you know a little bit of how this is going to be set up, this podcast will be only 10 episodes, and we will take an episode for each of the seven sections of the book, as well as having an episode that will be completely dedicated to the soundtracks of the book. And then uh, I'll have a celebratory episode for when the book actually launches, which is November 7th. And this intro episode is to talk a little bit about the process of the book, some of the overarching themes of the book. And I have an awesome special guest. So I'm very excited to welcome, to introduce to some, announce to others. My guest today is Bertha Lee, also known to me as Grandma. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Grandma. Hey, Mina, how you doing? I'm doing good. Thanks for agreeing to do this, y'all. Calling my grandma and asking her to be a part of this podcast and my grandma's so tech savvy she already knew what a podcast was bless <laughs> so this is going to be great we have some questions for y'all but grandma has some questions before we start so tell me what your question was grandma well i i from the subject of your book a broken record i knew immediately that you weren't talking about the physical broken record you were talking about our lives mm-hmm and down through the years, I've had a lot of broken records that I've had to fix. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm, y'all, I can't wait to hear about this. This is going to be great. Yes, I love it. I love it. And another reason why, Grandma, I'm really excited to have you on the podcast is because the dedication of the book, I wrote last. So after I wrote the whole thing, then I have the option of if I'm going to do a dedication page, if I'm going to do some acknowledgments. And I wanted to dedicate this book to Grandma Sudi, which was your mom, and to you and to my mom, which is three generations of women in our family. All three of you have influenced me so much as a woman, as a writer, and also as a believer. Uh, Each of you have really been a part of my faith journey, too. So I thought it would be so fitting for you to be here for this intro episode, since the, the book dedication is right there to you. Uh, talking about just just the the generations of women in our family and how each generation made it so that the next generation of women in our family could do even more things and experience even more you know just blessings and and experiences too so that always makes me just so emotional thinking about that. So I'm so happy that you are here. I'm so blessed, blessed. <laughs> Never knew that this would ever occur. Oh, my, when you was a little girl, bringing you up and taking to the library and you're reading books and books and books. And, um, oh, and then you started writing poems. And then later on, you became an um, an adult. You wrote a, a book. I mean, you wrote me- memoirs, memoirs or things in this book that you dedicated to mother and, and my daughter, Jean, and me. And I still got them. 
you know, and I get to share them with people. And the response, my, 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 my. Oh my gosh, I love it, Grandma. And those of you who may have been attending some events or I've been performing, I have been telling Grandma stories for a long time. And for a long time, those stories were really also uh, about my Grandma Sudi, which is my Grandma Bert's mom. And I spent a lot of time with both of them growing up, but I always tell these stories about Grandma Sudi. Well, in the last year or two, Grandma, you know, stories about you have been showing up, you know, in my work and my poems and Everybody that meets you, they just immediately adopt you into their family. It's like you are grandma to everybody. So I put out on social media an opportunity for people to ask you questions. And y'all, y'all, I have all these slips of paper right here. Y'all have so many questions for grandma. We're not even going to have time to cover all these questions on the podcast today, but we're going to get through as many questions as we can today. And then the questions that we missed today Maybe I'll convince grandma to do a video series with me and we can oh, do a questions with grandma for the ones we miss. And um, y'all y'all gave me uh, a, a measly four questions. So I always tell people that um, everybody, when they meet me, they think they think I'm all right until they meet grandma. <laughs> and then they like, oh, OK, I mean, it's nice if you come back to our event, but is your grandma coming? <laughs> <laughs> mm. So let's start in on the questions, grandma. I'm going to start with a question right. for you. I'm going to mix these up. I'm going to do the shuffle. Okay. Let's start with this one. All right. This question says, what are your greatest fears for your children and grandchildren? My greatest fears when they were growing up and for the ones that are coming along now, I have grands, great grands, our grandchildren and great grandchildren. And, um, my greatest fear, I wanted them to get an education as they were growing up. From uh, the time that they were old enough to, I could teach them the ABCs and they could learn the Roman numbers along with just regular numbers. I could teach them old one and two and three and they could go up. It didn't take them any time to go up to 10. And so I knew I had something special. And I um, <clears throat> wanted them to get an education, and we were living down south. Everything was segregated at that time when I had my children, and before until they got to be uh, teenagers. And so um, we didn't have um, um, we had a library at school, and I would take them to the other public library, and we would check out books and bring them home and let them read them. And uh, I bought the newspaper. Let them see the comments, strips in the newspaper. And I made sure when they went to school in the morning um, and, and uh, they came back home, they did their homework, and they loved to read, loved to read. So really I didn't have any trouble with them doing their homework, and they were okay in math too. And as um, the children grew up and got into uh, sports and so forth, and I wanted I learned how to play the piano when I was 11 years old, between 10 and 11. And that was my life for 50 years, playing for churches and weddings and different things. And so I wanted them to to participate uh, in the band or the glee club or whatever, and they did. And, I, and my, feel, my fears were, at that time was that um, would they be able to go to college? Mm. 
would they be able to go to college, away and, and to college, and live in a dorm and socialize? And God had it already planned. All of it came to fruition. Mm. Every one of them went to college. I had four children. Every one of them. Each of them went to college. All of them went to college. Mm. And um, two didn't get their BS, but they went to, they got their associate degree. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I was so thankful. And after that, I know I didn't have to worry about my great-grandchildren because I had instilled in my children that they needed education. And um, I knew they were going to make sure their children got an education. Plus, I was still living, and I... And that's what I dedicated my life to, not just to my children, but the children in the community, mm. the children in the family, the mm-hmm. children in the church. Mm-hmm. I played for the choir, and I taught them how to sing basic hymns and other songs, and took them on trips. Mm-hmm. And that's what they remember most. I love that because one of my experiences growing up being your granddaughter was that college, in my mind, it, like it wasn't an option not to go. It was more a question of, well, which college will you go to? But just even hearing you talk about Mm -hmm. it, hearing my mom talk about that. So that was something that was just instilled in me, you know, by being around the family. Right. Assuming that you're going to school, you know, (laughs) there wasn't even a conversation about will you go to school or will you not go to school? It was, well, you get to decide where you want to go to school. You get to do your applications and those things. But I I do think that was a really powerful thing for me because it already was something in my sights to think about and to see myself in that environment. I think that's really powerful. That's a thing that fixes some broken records too, is when we have people in our lives to sort of see our future. One of the phrases that my grandma says all the time is she'll say, I see you in your future, (laughs) you know, and it always makes me laugh, but it's also really beautiful thing there are a lot of times in my life that you really have seen me in my future better than I could see myself you know so I'm gonna pick one of my um questions over here that y'all asked me I'm gonna shuffle but it's not as fun as shuffling grandma's questions (laughs) (laughs) okay somebody asked me oh when someone refers to ATL do they say the letters ATL or are the letters sounded out like Adel (laughs) I'll take this question. Um, Yes. When we say ATL, which I don't, my mind feels like, and I'm not born and raised, you know, ATLian, but I've been here almost 20 years. I came here to go to college. Speaking of talking to grandma about college, I came here to go to Spelman College. So ATL to me came as a hip hop reference to me. So a lot of my friends who are of similar generation to me, we say ATL because I always thought that was a hip hop thing, but I have to do the etymologies, but no, you don't say Adel. And uh, as you read the book, you also don't say Hotlanta. You either say Atlanta or ATL. Great question. Thank you. All right. Let's do another grandma question. Let's shuffle these around. All right, grandma. Let's see what we got. This one says, what breaks your heart? Woo. I had some deep questions today. What breaks grandma's heart? What breaks grandma's heart? Well, when um, the children go to school and sometimes they get in a little fight after school. And sometimes their friends tell them, want them to come out and play. And they're reading a book or um, they're taking lessons. I gave Jean, uh, all the, I tried to give all the girls piano lessons. 
And um, sometimes they were interested for the first few days, but then they'd go ahead of the teacher and they lose interest because the teacher wanted them to go step by step, page by page. And they were probably bored after they had learned all that. They'd go through the book and, and do their lesson way ahead of time, and the teachers didn't like that. So after a while, the kids lost interest in it, except for um, Jean and, and Alan. They decided to get in the band. Mm. And after they got in the band, the band traveled. And I made sure, I made sure that I paid the money that we were required to pay ahead of time so that they, there'd be no problem them going because I know that was experience, education, and awareness of things around them. They went to a lot of places to play in the uh, Christmas parades and the football games, and I wanted them to get that experience, yeah. you know? So they weren't afraid of people. They were glad to go to those different things. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't go with them all the time. So I made sure that they went, and the chaperones went, and I was good to all of them that I that I that I uh, was in contact with. Mm-hmm. Now, Tim, Tim, repeat that question one more time, so the I got to see what else. The question is, what breaks your heart? Let's well, um, like I said, when they went went with the football team or they the band went, they had chaperones. But sometimes the school that they went to was so good; it was a um, they performed at top level, and uh, sometimes they would go to other cities. I didn't go with them, and the kids would try to go up to the bus, and fights would break out because people, other schools are jealous of them, oh. you know. Mm-hmm. But um, I taught the kids how to stay in the group and and near their chaperone, and then they learned how to already elbow their way onto the bus, and I didn't have to worry about them anymore. And... Um, when um, after they got into high school, they had to usher at the church, or they had to sing the choir, or they had to attend Sunday school. And they were getting older then. They were getting to be about 15 and 16 years old. And then the 17 when they finished high school. And they told me other kids maybe didn't go to church all the time. Some of their friends didn't go to church all the time, but they would play football, sandlot football or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so they told me that, some of them told me, my daughter didn't tell me that, but the boys told me that they weren't ever going back to church if they ever, when they graduated from high school hmm. because I made them go. Oh. I made them participate, mm. you know? Mm-hmm. And I'm so thankful I did. And I don't know if it's okay to tell you how they ended up or not or where you want me to. Well, let me let me ask you this. When you think about in in the context of like what breaks your heart, I feel like what I'm hearing you say is that it would break your heart to think that kids or your kids couldn't have those good experiences, you know, or that kids in the community didn't have a chance to be a part of church community or didn't have a chance to do things like be in the band and get a chance to experience not just the town where you live, but other towns, other schools, other things, uh, would you say that part is true? Well, later on, before they finished high school, the um, American became, um, segregation was overcome, let's say it, put it that way. I, I, I won't go through every step. But anyway, when when uh, everything became uh, so that when they went off, they didn't have to go to a special bathroom or special restaurant. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they could sit wherever they wanted to because when they was in <clears throat> in school up through uh, about the um, 10th grade, 
uh, uh, about the 10th grade. Um, sometimes they couldn't. We had to sit upstairs at the theaters. Mm. But they didn't see no difference because I was with them, bought them popcorn and, and whatever else you wanted to eat in the, in the theater. And I made it fun. We sat upstairs, but we could see better. Mm. We could see everybody downstairs and upstairs, too, you know. And uh, I let them know that they read books and they know about segregation. And so they understood that that's where we came from, over in Africa, wherever. But we had never been over in Africa, so I told them we were in America now. Mm -hmm. And one day it would happen so that they could go to these things. Mm -hmm. And so as things gradually uh, opened up and they went with the band uh, at the football games, our band sat on one side. And the other high school bands that on the other side, mm. but uh, so it was even at the football games that part was segregated still mm -hmm, for a while mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. for for our people, mm -hmm. you know. And so um, life turned out good. Mm. Prayer was the key, yeah. and keeping them in church, mm. you know, and um, inviting their friends to go with them. And uh, I just made sure that when I cook cakes or whatever cookies or whatever. We shared them, and they liked to come in my house mm -hmm. because of the boys and and uh, Jean, and the and the people they associated with. They loved to come to uh, our house, and we didn't live far from the church. And so when I got the choir, the junior choir, or the little missionaries, uh, my mother um, had a, a sunshine band. She called it, and. Uh, I would drive. She didn't drive, so I would take her to pick up the kids. And the parents were glad for their children to be somewhere they didn't have to worry about them. And we would keep the kids for like a couple of hours, mm -hmm. you know. And um, when we did that, we had a church, a choir stand full of the children. And and other churches were doing the same thing at that time. We had the NACCP, and um, we were all gathering together to show our kids what they could be, mm. what they would be one day. Mm. And when the kids left um, North Carolina went up north. They experienced a lot of things going up there. Mm -hmm. One of the things I really love about your answer to this question too, Grandma, is that it seemed like there during this time that you were raising your kids, there were a lot of things to be brokenhearted over, but you found a way through prayer and just wanting to see a better life for your kids to take some of those circumstances that were really heartbreaking and to find some triumph in that and some places where you could succeed, where your kids could succeed and have, you know, a better life, have a life, you know, that you really imagine for them to have where they could have God in their life and have an education and get to experience, you know, the world, you know, a certain way. So I love that. Let's take another question here. I'll take one. Let's see what this says. It says, uh, what are some practices you use to listen to yourself or to notice your broken records? Mm. Well, um, I think the interesting thing about when we have broken records in our life is we typically discover them at a really inopportune time. And I have found that that is true for me. So I can't always say that I'm listening for my broken records, but I think life and certain circumstances will come up and I'm like, why am I so afraid of that? Or why do I think I can't achieve that? You know, what are the, or why, why do I think that of God when I know that's not true about God? And so sometimes those broken records will crop up and I have to then, I sort of experience a block, I guess, is how I know I've got a broken record somewhere if I feel stunted or like I can't move forward 
in an area of my life. And I think a good uh, practice is to pay attention to those moments that you feel stunted or that you feel like you should go further in a way, but you keep stopping or keep having this like revolving door experience where you're just going around the same circle all the time. And that's a part of what made me want to write this book because this time in my life has been a time of thinking about, well, what are those areas of my life where I'm not close to God because I believe a negative thing, where I'm not having good relationships because I believe a negative thing. And how does God want to heal those areas of my life? So great question. All right, let's take a grandma question. Grandma got the fun questions too. Okay, let's try this one. If you could give advice to your younger self, what would it be? If I could give advice to my younger self now, Mm -hmm. oh, it would be off the chain. (laughs) Social media, Mm -mm -mm. I've got a telephone that I can just use for the keyboard to just type and text anything I want to, to do on it and reach people all over the United States. And beyond, probably, if I had a lot of friends over there, I don't have but a few friends overseas. But I text, and I receive texts every day, telephone calls, but I prefer texting because it'll stay there until I get ready to answer. And I communicate with people, but if I I had these, um, when I was, I'll say when I was uh, 20 years years old, or when when I was um, 40 years old, if I had had all this to my exposure, Oh, my, 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 my. I don't know what I would have done for my family, for my friends, and for myself. Uh, I had a husband that went to Howard University, and he went to the Army, and he got a medical discharge from the military. But he loved to travel. He loved to travel, and uh, he was seeking something in this world that he never got to really finalize. But even so, we went to Washington, D.C., we went to Virginia, we went to uh, Indiana, we went to Georgia. We took the kids a lot of places. We lived in a lot of different places. We met a lot of faces, a lot of people in other cultures. And all that helped me to realize when I went out of state from North Carolina, how big the world is and how many things you can learn from just being in another state that you felt free to do whatever. You could go to the movies with everybody. There was no segregation where you had to go to a special movie or you had to sit in a special seat or you could ride a bus wherever you wanted to go. And you could live in apartments. Oh, we lived in some beautiful apartments and houses. And the first time I had ever seen um, a three-story house with a basement with a first floor where the dining room was and, and the kitchen and so forth. And the bedroom was upstairs on the third floor. And so when the people from North Carolina came up to visit us, we were just enjoying life. And if I had had, if I had, had these um, opportunities then that I have now, we probably would have moved to California or maybe Hawaii. I don't know where we would have gone. But I thank God for the experience that I'm having now. Mm. I'm learning something every day. Mm, I love that. I love that. And you're about to turn 85. Yes. This month. So even at almost 85 years old, you still feel like you're you're learning new things. You, every day. You haven't experienced everything there is to know. Mm-mm. You're still open to new experiences. 
I've been to the, um, uh, I love tennis because my grandson uh, grew up playing tennis. His father made that available after he saw he had a talent for that. And uh, I've been to U.S. Open. I watch tennis all the year uh, on TV. And I've been to Washington, D.C. at tennis matches. And I've just just had lots of, I've been to um, restaurants that had a, a book section in the restaurant in Washington, D.C. that we could have lunch there. I saw all the people coming. I was there. And then there was a book section where you could go. I can't think of the name of the, the restaurant right now. But there was a book section that you could go if you didn't want after you ate your lunch or before you ate your lunch. If you didn't want to eat lunch, you could just go and spend your time in the library there at that book section. And I've been to the White House. Mm. I've toured the White House. And I've been to um, the mall um, in D.C. where they had uh, concerts outside. Mm -hmm. I had never experienced that in North Carolina. But I experienced that. God let me live to experience that. Mm. And I've been to New York, to um, West Point twice. And I got to go to some of the theaters there. I had never experienced that before. And it was new to me. I had read about a lot of those things. But I actually got a chance to experience them because my kids got an education. My grandchildren, all my grandchildren got an education. All of them went to college and and they were able to take care of themselves. Mm -hmm. That way they were able to book me a flight whenever I wanted to go visit them. Or They made it possible for me to do a lot of things that I would never have had a chance to do if I had stayed in the South. Mm. Oh, I love that, Grandma. Oh, my goodness. Let me take another question. Y'all, I'm, I'm sitting here listening to Grandma like, yes. <laughs> okay, uh, this question is about the book itself, how did you decide on the form of how the book is written? Great question. How to Fix a Broken Record is written in seven sections. Under each section are shorter chapters. It's definitely more uh, storytelling driven and essay style are written very memoir-esque. I really loved reading the form the form and the, and the content of books by Amy Poehler and Mindy Kaling, Tina Fey, Issa Rae, I really loved the way female comedians were writing their books. And I'm not a comedian, but I love the form that they use, that they take a topic and kind of write some essays about their life. And some of it's funny and some of it's about hard stuff in life too. And so I really wanted to use that form for this book. So I took on a different form than my first book. And then what a lot of the form for traditional um, Christian trade books would be. I wanted to write a book about faith that was also about the foibles of life and about love and when love works and when it doesn't work and about family and finding your roots and how you learn more about God through that journey. So great question. All right, let's take a grandma question. Dun, 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 dun. Okay, this one says, what is your go-to recipe for family and guests? I love most foods, if they're vegetables and fruits and seafood. And of course, you know, I love chicken, but yes. I've learned not to eat he too also. much meat. <laughs> I don't eat too much meat nowadays. I've learned better. I've uh, found out that um, the vegetables, I can get all the proteins I want from vegetables. Mm -hmm. 
That's where they come from, mm-hmm. you know. And then I've learned that um, the animals, the way that they're treating the animals nowadays and feeding them and making money off them. Uh, when I was growing up, I used to um, put in tobacco. At the age of 10, 11, I would go with my mother and grandmother. We had some church members that were sharecroppers. Mm. And I loved being around the tent, tobacco barn, they call it, along the end. And um, hear the older people talking, and and uh, they would. I learned a lot of things. They would take food. They had prepared food to take there, and we had plenty of watermelons that they took out in the garden. And the uh, sharecroppers um, were black, and the people that owned the property were white. And um, when we would go, when the sharecropper, whoever's day it was for the people that were sharecroppers to go to um, the house to fix dinner uh, about an hour or so before all of us could go there. We would take our own food, but they would always cook something that they would share with all of us. Mm. We could get um, watermelons, or we'd had watermelons every day. And then um, sometimes when we didn't put in tobacco, we would have uh, go pick stream beans. Mm. And we could always bring stream bean, beans home with you. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we loved to cook. My mother could cook them and season them. Mm, oh, mm-mm. it was so good. It was so good. And at that time, when we first started, um, refrigerators had come out, but before, but they hadn't come out where everybody could buy them. Depends on what kind of job your parents had or where they lived. And um, sometimes we had something what they call an ice box. Mm-hmm. You go to the ice house and you get a big block of ice and you put it in your ice box and it would keep your food cold, you know. And in the wintertime, my parents knew how to put things outside, you know. If the refrigerator, if the ice box was too full, they put it outside, and it would still stay cold. Mm. You learn so many ways of life, how to take care of yourself, how to prepare um, food for your children. So uh, we ate a lot of vegetables, and um, the guys went fishing, and we had fish. Sometimes they go to the pond, and um, they would get catfish. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't care too much for catfish after I found out where, where they were um, caught. Mm-hmm. But I love fish, and I love to clean them. And I, when my grandchildren came along, I would take them, especially my grandson, Corey, I would take him to the fish market to help me pick out the fish. Mm-hmm. And I explained things to them. Not just take them to the fish market. We're going to just buy some fish. I would tell them the names of the fish, mm-hmm. you know, the different fish, and, and point out the eyes and the scales and let him see me take them back to the house and clean them. At the, and then later on, the people at the fish market would clean the fish. But when I wanted to take some home, maybe I didn't have time for them to do all the guys had brought some where they had gone fishing. We would clean the fish. I would say, so kids had that, that experience. Mm-hmm. You know, they learned a lot of things, how to, how to um, eat. And um, we had a lot of fruit trees uh, in our neighborhood. And um, then we had walnut trees in our neighborhood, peach trees, apple trees. Oh, we just lived. Mm. We didn't have a lot of the luxuries uh, that by living in the south that we had, that people up north had. But we had more luxuries than some of them had because they had to go to the store mm. to buy their fruits and, and veggies because we had garden. Mm. And I learned how to go to the garden. And um, my daddy grew tomatoes and cucumbers, stream beans. Mm, 
Mm-mm. We were poor, but we didn't know that we were poor. Financially, we were poor. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, that was the only, only thing where we really were poor. And I didn't even feel that because I had Sunday, Sunday clothes, I had school clothes, and I had play clothes. Mm-hmm. So I didn't have a deficit in, in nothing I saw in my life except uh, things were uh, segregated. But when I went up north and that opened my eyes to so much that other people were experiencing, even though I didn't want to live up there mm-hmm. at that time. And we left there, my husband and I left there and went to Indiana. And that was the coldest place I ever Ooh. lived. Mm-mm. Oh, it starts snowing in Fort Wayne, Indiana. It starts snowing in October. Mm. And I don't know who it snows before October or not. But anyway, uh, you, I would take my husband to work and I would keep the car. Because I had two children at that time. And um, before I could get back home, it may well start snowing. And you couldn't even roll up your car windows. Ooh. You know? Mm. Oh, my. We had lecture 225. I won't ever forget that. Beautiful. <laughs> mm. Oh, and I loved to drive. I had moved up. When I left <laughs> North Carolina, I learned a lot of things. It didn't take me long to learn. Because I saw the difference in things. Yeah. And I wanted to learn. Mm-hmm. You know? And oh, we... Mm-mm-mm-mm. Good life, good life, good life. <laughs> Can you describe a little bit for us what it was like when you were helping the sharecroppers with the tobacco? I remember you telling me a little bit what it was like to pick cotton. I've told some people um, when I do performances mm-hmm. just how when I see even the cotton plant, it always is striking to me, not something that I would decorate with even though that's a thing now that people mm-hmm. decorate with those cotton right, plants. I would right. decorate with it because it has some painful implications and, you know, the history of our family. But I always think about you and think about Grandma Sudi also just remembering you talking about how thorny of a plant that that was mm-hmm. and, and how you'd have to pick enough cotton. Um, it'd have to weigh so much if by the end to make of the money. day if you're going to make any money, which <laughs> is like crazy in my mind because I'm like, but it's like it's cotton. You have to pick so much of it you for did. it to weigh anything for you <laughs> right. to make money. So tell us a little bit um, about what that process was like, even for you as a little girl doing the tobacco. Was that a similar process that you're picking to tobacco from the like? How, describe to me how this worked. OK, um, when I was a little girl and my mother, I would go out to tobacco barn I mean, to, to um, put in tobacco, they call it. And um we would go there, and the men would bring, they would crop tobacco. The tobacco grew just like corn grows on the stalk. Mm, okay. And um, the um, guys would go out there, and they would crop the tobacco. They were, In other words, they'd bring the leaves off, bring them to the barn where we were, and they call it um, the, uh, the uh, ladies, and the men too knew how, but the ladies most and the children, I learned how to strain tobacco on a, on a stick. Oh, on a stick. You learn how to string it on a stick so that um, they could take it and put it in a tobacco bond mm-hmm. to cure to cure it. C U R E. Oh, to cure it. Uh-huh. Yes. Okay. And um, then um, tobacco bonds. You don't. When you come down south, you still see some old tobacco bonds, but they must have another way of doing it nowadays. I don't know. I haven't. Uh, you don't see many tobacco bonds. People don't do that. That's not the way they do tobacco now. But anyway, as a child, um, they, they had a horse hooked onto a wagon. And the men would crop that tobacco and bring it to the barn. And they'd leave it there for us to, the children and the grown people too. But I loved handing tobacco to my grandmother so she could string it. Mm. Some people learn how to string it real nice and mm. fast. Mm-hmm. 
and some people were a little slow. So I learned how, that process. Mm-hmm. And it was fun to me. All the kids loved it, mm-hmm. you know. And um, the guys would bring uh, a watermelon to the bond, bring some watermelons up to, to the bond, and we would cut it. And um, sometimes I've seen them even busted people that didn't have a knife right then. They couldn't wait to get a piece of that watermelon. <laughs> oh, we just had so much fun mm-hmm. and so much energy was flowing there. We would sing songs, church songs. And they probably some other sang other kind of songs, but I I didn't ever learn how to uh, sing too many of those songs. I learned, I heard a lot of them, but I didn't sing. I wasn't allowed to sing those kind of songs. Well, I didn't ever try really, you know. But I was taught better. I was taught differently. Let's mm-hmm. say it that way. Some of those songs I did like. Okay, you know, I like mm-hmm. the message. Right. I like I like the message. But anyway, if um, the Owner of the of the of the um, land, the t- tobacco and, and so forth, whatever they were, they had, um, we would keep their children down to the barn, and they would help out. And and some of the uh, landowners, they would come down. The women would come down and work with us, and they leave when they got ready and go back to the house. But mostly it was us, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And but the men were real friendly. They was in the field with the the guys that was cropping tobacco because it was a continuous flow until twelve o'clock, mm. and so we stopped at twelve o'clock and and they would fix that dinner and we we would make uh, tea, iced tea, the best iced tea you ever tasted, lemonade sometimes, mm. and uh, we didn't drink a lot of sodas then. Mm-hmm. We drank water. You had to, uh, the water was well water. We had a well, and um, you, you uh, let the bucket down in the well, and we. We learned how to do that, and you pour the, the bucket up with the, the, the uh, it had a mechani- mechanism where you could pull it up by the a rope, and you would take your water and fill your containers up with water, and of course it didn't taste like our water nowadays, mm-hmm. but some of it was very good water, some right. of it was very good water, mm-hmm. and um, <clears throat> and um, after the tobacco season, oh, one thing I do want to tell you mm-hmm. from a long time ago, uh, when I was... Um, I told you I started putting tobacco, um, to string it. I learned how to string it myself, and I love to hand it. And um, but anyway, when I was eleven years old, my daddy told me I was almost twelve. Let's see, October. I was going to be um, twelve that Nate's after that Nate's tobacco season, and uh, he said, "If you all are saving your money." Um, all this year, put in tobacco and whatever you do, I have an aunt in uh, New Jersey. Hmm. He said, I'll let you go up there, Bertha May, if you'd like to go up there to see her, to visit, because we communicate with her, we wrote letters and whatever. And um, he said, uh, and he knew that I was the kind of child that wanted to learn different things. Mm-hmm. And he said, you and your girlfriend at school, if you all save your money for a whole year, I'm going to give you a whole year to save your money. And I'll let you go to New Jersey to stay with my aunt for a week. Wow. And so that was an incentive to me. Mm-hmm. My parents always wanted me to learn new things. I only had a brother. I had a sister that died at crib death when she was about three months old. But I had a brother that I grew up with. And um, we just kept it in our minds. That mm-hmm. was something that we knew we were going to work forward to, mm-hmm. look forward to, you know. And my parents didn't tell me anything wrong. When they said they were going to take me shopping, they did that. I have been shopping when Daddy bought me a pair of shoes and Mother bought me a pair. 
Because I said, I want another pair of shoes. Mm-hmm. And mother said, well, I've already bought you. I said, yeah, but I want another, whatever. And so my daddy would get me another pair of shoes. And so they never told me anything wrong mm-hmm. when I was growing up. Whatever they promised me, they did that. Mm-hmm. And um, so um, when I was 11, um, uh, almost for that whole year, I saved my money that I made. They didn't pay the children as much as they paid the grown people, mm-hmm. but we, they paid us a good amount. We didn't have anything else to do with the money but save it, really. Put it in Sunday school or church or whatever. And were you going there after school or during the summer? No, in the summertime. Only during the summer. All right, we well, only okay. put in tobacco during the summer. Okay. And you started putting, picking cotton in the fall. Oh, I got you. Mm-hmm. Okay. They were seasoned for different things. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, stream beans, we wouldn't pick stream beans before the tobacco was ready. Okay. You know. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, <clears throat> after the tobacco season was over, um, and the um, and sometimes uh, after the tobacco was cured in the tobacco barn all night, then the next day some of the people would go. I would go with my mother because she would go early. That people come and get her early. She was a good worker, and we would go early, and they would take tobacco out of the barn on the stick, and it was already cured then. And they were going to get ready to take it to the market to sell it. And so uh, we would go there so they could uh, hand it down from the barn. Up, up the barn was like a two-story or three-story house almost. The men could stand up there and hand it down to us. And then we take it off the stick. And mm-hmm. we had to sort it. Mm-hmm. Good leaves, you know. Not so good leaves. And, and the ones bad leaves, you know. And, um... It would take me a lot to explain all that to you, but I, I have the time if you ever uh, want to do a, a, a something on all those things. Anyway, that season was over, and uh, I didn't go and work in drought tobacco because it was time for school to open again. Okay. But they had to take it to the markets in September and October like mm-hmm. that, you know. And you had to have different grades of tobacco, you know. And so um, that's what I did. And when, when uh, my first experience as um, about 11 years old, I wanted to go pick cotton because my friends, their mother would let them stay out of school to go pick cotton. Wow. But my father, my parents wanted me to go to school. They wanted me to get an education because mm-hmm. my mother was a ninth grade student and my daddy said he, he stopped uh, school in sixth grade. Mm-hmm. And uh, whatever, and I could read almost anything and I would talk to anybody. And, and uh, my daddy the newspaper would come, and I would have always read it from front to back. And then some things I explained to my parents, they see the pictures of the newspaper, and I would explain to them about certain things. Mm-hmm. Uh, certain things they get through the mail, they wanted me to read it. Bertha mm-hmm. may come read this for me. And I would do that, you know. And I would give them my explanation, and, of course, then they got to talk to other grown people in the neighborhood and whatever. And that's how they learn things. Hmm. And um, so um, when the... When um, so I kept wanting to go to pick cotton. Oh, I thought that was an experience that the girl, the children that in my neighborhood were going, and they were having such a good time. So one Saturday morning, my daddy told me that um, mother was going on a Saturday, and um, she could pick at least two hundred pounds, hmm. and she had some brothers that could pick more than that. Oh, they were fast, you know, they were fast. Anyway, um, we went that Saturday morning, Daddy, I went, my brother went, 
And we went out there, and I thought it was going to be so much fun. And the tobacco be the dude would be, have, have, the dude had, was on the cotton in the morning time from the night, you know, before, and the dude made the cotton heavy. Oh. So it would be kind of wet like that. Mm-hmm. And so I went on, picked that cotton, and they were wet. And it didn't weigh a whole lot because that was my first time. But it made me feel like I could do 100 pounds. My dad is. My daddy told me that I need to pick at least 100 pounds. Hmm. If I couldn't pick 100 pounds, that I couldn't ever go back again. Wow. And so the, when you, you um, pick your cotton and you wear it and um, they give you a ticket for it or whatever. Anyway, uh, the sun came out. When the sun came out, the back of the, the uh, cotton was dry. Mm-hmm. And it didn't. So it weighed it, less. Weighed, it, it weighed less. That's oh. right. <laughs> Yeah. And you had to pick a lot of it. Oh, my. And it was getting hot out there and sweating on that ground. And you pick, get your um, sack full and you take it up there so they could wear it. Oh, my. Mm, mm, mm. I didn't like that. And my fingers were sore where that tobacco, where you had to get that cotton out of that. Well, where you picked the cotton, that the bird, what the cotton was encased in, mm-hmm. I like, think you call it a B-U-R-R. Oh, like what they call it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Anyway, um, I would do that. And I was mostly wanting to eat and drink. Oh, I had to eat whatever mother had bought. <laughs> she keeps stuff. The older ladies know how to have food there for everybody to eat on. And moon pies. and Oh, my. The mother took us different things like that that we could eat on. And anyway, uh, that afternoon when we took all our tickets up, and they added all up how much you had picked that day. I hadn't even picked 70 pounds. I don't wow. know why I had picked 50 pounds or not. And, um, but I thought I had done pretty good. And then I w- went home. And that next Saturday, oh, that week I went on. Daddy said, Bert, I'm going to let you, Bertha May, he called me. He said, I'm going to let you go back again next Saturday. But if you can't bring home more than, oh, Whatever I did for 50 pounds, I don't know how much that was at that time. I've forgotten now. But um, he said, I, I, I'm telling you now, you got to bring, you got to pick at least 100 pounds to be worth your going out there. So I went to Nate Saturday. The Nate Saturday, I think I picked about 70 pounds. Oh, man. And because I was so fearful that I had not picked 100 pounds, I could never go again. Mm-hmm. Mother and the other ladies and the people gave gave me some of that uh, cotton, so hmm. I could have a hundred pounds. Wow, Grandma! Wow. But after that, I didn't never go back to picking cotton. I didn't really want to go back. I I had that experience, and that wasn't this kind of experience for me. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'd rather go to school. Mm, listen, <laughs> I mean, whenever I hear you telling more about mm. that and giving more detail about mm-hmm. it, you know, that was a part of what made me write the dedication to the book that way. Because in a way, here's Grandma Sudi, which was your mom. Mm-hmm. They're having sharecropped as a child, picking cotton, picking tobacco, mm-hmm. but they had this vision for you to right. want you to be able to have a better life than That's they right. did, mm-hmm. than even their parents That's and right. their parents who, you know, when we get that, when we get back that far into our family, then we're talking about our enslaved ancestors right. at that point mm-hmm. who we're not getting paid anything, you know, who we're going to have to work all these long, strenuous hours mm-hmm. and, you know, and that. And so to see how over the generations, you know, here are your parents going, well, that's an experience you can have, but we want education for you. That's what they want. And then you receiving that education, being able to read and learn things and be exposed to that, 
how you influenced your children That's true. to go further in their education. And we can see how that has played such a big role in our family as now you have great grandchildren mm-hmm. even who are getting so much more educated even than I was at their age, you know? So there's a, there's a lot of uh, hard things to that story, but also a lot of beautiful things to it too. Last question for me, and then I'll see how many more grandma questions we can do. Uh, Someone asks, what inspired me to write this book? Well, in part, y'all can see that (laughs) the people I come from (laughs) (laughs) inspired me to write this book. I I come (laughs) from a long line of storytellers. (laughs) And so I think that's why story is so important to me. And I wanted to, I wanted to write a book that felt really true to me true to my voice, true to my family, and all the stories I come from also. So this book is very uh, story-driven. I also, I, I have my first book, I uh, came out a few years ago, uh, Breaking All Rhythms, which I enjoyed writing also, but I, I decided to wait on writing another book until I felt like whatever it was I wanted to say kept coming up, mm-hmm. you know? Like it felt like the book was saying, now it's time to be written. And that was a, a good writing process to go into this book knowing like I have a I have a story that I want to tell. And I think in me sharing my stories, some of which like the stories you're hearing from grandma today, you know, some of those stories are are really beautiful stories and some of those stories are beautiful and hard also. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think when we share those stories, it really uh, helps uh, endear us to other people. It, it really uh, brings out all of our humanity in a way that we all have some type of stories like that. It reminds us how important our stories are. So that was a little bit of the inspiration behind this. Let me see if I can get in. Let's do one last grandma question. Then I have a couple of questions for grandma. Okay. And then I'm gonna see if I can convince grandma to come back and do a little video series for us. I'd be honored. Oh, this is a great question to close with. It says, what do you look forward to now for yourself and the next generation? Well, I'm looking forward to my 85th birthday. And I believe when I was 84 last year that God was going to allow me to see my 85th birthday and celebrate it. So I decided that I was, since I don't know what each day is going to bring We never know about tomorrow, but I can live today, and I have hope for tomorrow. And I don't know how how many tomorrows I'm going to have, and I don't even worry about that because it's up to God, our creator. It's up to him. And I decided when we went to the beach this summer, we started going to the beach every summer as a family. My children, my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren, we were all there. All of us. And um, before I went, I decided, since I didn't know what my tomorrows would be, and I want I want to leave, leave memories when I'm gone, I tell the children, like my parents told me, don't hang your head down. I mean, if you're uh, tearful, that's okay. Or if you want to holler, that's okay. But you don't have to do that to prove to anybody our love. We have love for each other that we show every time we see each other. Every time we talk to each other, every time we text each other or whatever. And so I said, um, since I have some great-grandchildren that are 
uh, like six and under, I decided that uh, I just wanted to celebrate my birthday, my 85th birthday, the whole, my 84th birthday, the whole year, up until my 85th birthday. And I wanted to leave memories in case I didn't face any more tomorrows. I just wanted to have fun. If we could get everybody under one roof. And so we did. And um, each one of us had a, each family had a room and a bathroom, our own, for a whole week. We had a swimming pool at the house. I never experienced that. When I was growing up, we didn't even have a, a swimming pool that black people could go to. My daddy then went to a water hole, um, like um, under the bridge um, in the country, there would be a place where they would take the animals to drink water, um, a stretch of water somewhere, and um, some of it would be man-made, and then they would take them to the river. And uh, the boys, my daddy said when he was growing up, they learned how to swim in the river, which was dangerous because they didn't have nobody there except somebody else that had learned how to swim or uh, to uh, oversee them to make sure they were safe and everything. So a lot of kids died back and forth. A lot of kids died in the South from going to the river to swim. Mm. And so um, after I found out that my grandson didn't wait for us to set our money that we were going to share for paying our part, he just went on and and um, he and his wife just went on and, and went on online like they do many times, like Amina. When I'm going somewhere traveling, she and her husband and my daughter Sometimes they'll just make our reservations and and uh, use their mileage for somebody. Oh, that she knows how to do her and Matt. And and um, my uh, older son. Oh, he took me to so many places. But getting back to the point about my birthday and uh, what. So I asked him, let's celebrate it. I said, not not no gifts. You all are my gifts. Mm. I can't think of a better gift than your child and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren. And so I just want us to all be together and play games. I love to play Scrabble and a few other games. But I didn't know how to swim. I'm afraid of water. But after I find out and I go to the beach and I put on my swimming, swimming uh, um, I mean, they call them swimming suits, but anyway, I put on my swimming outfit. Come on, swimming outfit. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> and and uh, I, I every year, and I would tend to the the children, the babies. Uh, I would sit under the tent. They would put a tent at the beach. I would sit underneath there and help with giving whenever anybody would come out of the water. I would give them some food or whatever. Sit there and fan the baby or whatever. But I've always been afraid of water because I didn't grow up going to the pool, having a pool to go to. Mm-hmm. And uh, we our church went to the beach. But we only went once a year. And I had never, I was afraid of all that water. And uh, at that time, uh, most of us could put our legs in there. They were fear about us that, uh, they were fear of the children that learned how to swim. And some of the children came from up north and they learned how to swim and, and they could do what. But the ladies, the older ladies would put there, and the men knew how to swim because they went to the river. And uh, the older ladies, they would just put their feet in. So 
Uh, I didn't. That's all I did was just wade in the water. I didn't mind wading in the water, but I didn't go too far there. Those waves and those things I wasn't familiar with. Mm -hmm. So this time, I said, well, maybe since we're going to have a pool at the house, maybe I can at least put my feet in the water. <laughs> and because most time I wouldn't even go to the beach. When we go to the beach, I wouldn't even go out there. I would stand out there on the, side, on the shore there on the side and look at the rest of them. But I wouldn't... Uh, those waves, I maybe would sit there and let the waves run on my feet, but I would never mm -mm, venture out because I didn't know how to swim. And um, everybody would go in this, um, when they would go to the um, swimming pool, I uh, wanted to go in there, but that I was fearful. And, and uh, I wasn't fearful that I was going to drown, but I was fearful in getting down there far down. Mm -hmm. Because I'm walking with a cane sometimes now. But anyway, I had all those strong arms from, from my son, sons and from my grandsons and from my son-in-law, my grand, great-grandson-in-law. Great they said, just come on in. Just come on right here. And we'll help you down all those strong arms. And I knew they would, but I had to get it between my ears that I could do that. Mm -hmm. Oh, my. Mm. And when I got in there, I just love it. Hmm. And I would like to take some swimming lessons, even even though I'm eight or four now, Mina. <laughs> oh, I was just so, oh, it was just a good feeling. Mm, mm, mm. I love to take a shower. <laughs> <laughs> I love to take a shower. Don't even like to get down in the tub too much now because I can't, I feel like I may not get up unless, get out easily unless somebody's in the house with me. But I take a shower. I love that water coming down on me. So anyway, I just love just being in there and um, just... Oh, my, 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 my. That was an experience at 84 years old. So mm -hmm. I'm hoping that between now and next year, I can take some swimming lessons. That's what I'm hoping. And uh, I'm, I'm not fearful of, of the water like that anymore. And I may just go and do some water aerobics. I don't know how, how I'm going to start out. But anyway, the children are going to help me find a place that I can go to to take water aerobics. And from there, maybe I can take swimming lessons. But um, God let me come through there, and, and I just have... I'm in the month of October, mm -hmm. and my birthday is the 29th of October, and I just don't even have no desire to. Uh, they try to take me to California for my birthday, pre-birthday, and I said, no, I'm not going to California. I'm not going to D.C. I'm going to stay right here in Georgia, and y'all don't have to make a big to-do over it because I've already thanked God for the days he's already given me, and I believe that he's going to let me see my 85th birthday, and I'm just satisfied. Y'all, that that was such a, a perfect illustration of a broken record that you had for mm. 84 years, 84 this broken years. record about the water and just not having the access to the pool and your fears of that. And that mm. at 84 years old, God can also heal those broken records. He can. He That's is. beautiful. Mm. Mm. I want to ask you one last question because mm. every person I interview on this podcast, I always ask at the end what your favorite record is that you can think of that you love, or it could be a song that you love. What would you say is a favorite album or favorite song that you really love? Well, there's a favorite song that I sang. Um, when I started working up a public job, I um, found this song that I talked to the choir, and I don't know, we would just go and, and uh, 
to the music store and just buy a lot of different songs that I could play. I I, I took music lessons, but I I didn't tape. Just I, I just went through my first book, and I didn't. I had enough then to teach me how to play. I did like the girls to teach me how to play uh, hymns, mm. and I would uh, just pick out um, the songs that I could play. I could play up to two flats, maybe, mm-hmm. and uh, maybe three shops, maybe. But what was simple, and because we hadn't had anybody else that could play music at mm-hmm. our church, they wanted, they liked it because I, I, I saw they that was entertaining, mm-hmm. and they liked it because I could play those hymns. They were singing the hymns. And people that could play by ear could listen to the music. They were playing those. But when I could learn to play those hymns by the music, the people at the church was learning a lot more. Their children going to college and going to school and mm-hmm. coming back home from out of state and wherever. And they just helped me along, you know. And so um, now I lost my train of thought by looking at you, Mina. Oh, no, it's okay. We'll fix the, we got to fix the mics anyway. Okay. What was that last question? I didn't. Oh, your um, you were telling us your favorite your favorite oh, yeah. song. My favorite song is "Serving the Lord Will Pay Off After a While." Mm, Serving the Lord will pay off. I after started a while. playing that from I don't even know who it was by, and I wish I could find a copy of it. It was on the sheet music, and it was in a book. But when I when I left uh, North Carolina uh, to go stay with my daughter in uh, Texas. I decided at my age, I didn't want to live by myself any longer. Mm-hmm. And my parents had passed. Mm-hmm. They'd gone to glory. And I kept them until um, they left this world. And I decided I didn't want to live by myself any longer. My husband died at 43. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, all the children were grown and grandchildren were grown. And I decided instead of staying in North Carolina, because I knew there was so much more I had been to Texas, and I'd been to New York, and I'd been to D.C., so much more to see in this world. Mm-hmm. I decided that I would just leave North Carolina and go there. And so when I did that, I didn't take that song with me, and I'm so sorry I didn't take it with me. I couldn't take all my uh, belongings with me. Mm-hmm. So I didn't take all that music because I didn't think I would probably even need it anymore. Mm-hmm. But everywhere I've gone since then, somebody has warned me to play something. But serving the Lord had a, has a good message, and the message will last forever. Serving the Lord will pay off after a while because it'll put you in the right frame of, frame of mind. It'll put you with some people that believe in God, and only, only, only what we do for God will last. Mm. And that put me in a frame of mind that I could do anything. Mm. I could do anything. And so because of that, I've always had that song in view, and I keep it in my heart. Mm. Grandma, thank you for You're joining welcome. me on this podcast <laughs> and sharing your story with me and so many listeners that will get a chance to listen to it. And I, I just enjoyed listening to you and hearing your story, mm. hearing your broken records, hearing how God has healed them. I love it. So thank you, Grandma. I love you. Oh, I'm blessed. And thank you. The How to Fix a Broken Record podcast is produced by DJ Ope Diggy at Orange Fuzz Studios in Atlanta, Georgia. The book, How to Fix a Broken Record, is available wherever books are sold. Thanks for listening.